Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Carrington, and you're listening to another edition of Call Talk, today for April 19th, 2017. Today's topic is Emerging Best Practices in Agent Screening, Success Through Optimized Simulations. Now, if you're listening live, we'd like to invite you to be a part of the show and ask questions, and it's easy to do. All you have to do is email me at brianbenchmarkportal.com, spelled out again, B-R-I-A-N, at benchmarkportal.com. Of course, I want to remind you, and you probably already know because you're doing it already right now, but we have shows archived from the last seven seasons that we've been doing this. So just head to our website and find out a topic and a show that's right for you. Download it anytime it's convenient, and that's BenchmarkPortal.com. So let's jump right into the show today. It's my pleasure to introduce the host of Call Talk, Bruce Belfiore. Thank you very much, Brian, and welcome back to Call Talk, everyone. There's nothing more important than getting the right people to staff your contact center, and that means careful attention to the way you recruit, screen, and hire your new employees. So to talk more about this crucial area of agent screening, we brought in a true expert on the topic for you, Joe LaTorre. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks for having me, Bruce. I'm really excited to be here, and I'm hoping that the information that I can provide today can help contact centers uh, hire better people and make sure that agents uh, are a good fit for the job and have a happy employment experience. Excellent. Now, those are all important points there. Well, just by way of introduction, Joe LaTorre is uh, Director of Innovation at Employment Technologies. Uh, Joe has designed and directed the development of more than 100 custom simulations for employee hiring. His design team has earned an unprecedented five national Top Product of the Year awards and has participated in the development of video-based and computer-based simulations for a variety of domestic and international clients. He holds an MS in Industrial and Organizational Psychology from Valdosta State University and has more than 20 years of global consulting experience. Joe has presented at national conferences related to advancing the science and accuracy of personnel selection and will share his expertise and unique perspectives with our audience today. So he's someone who can provide you with some really good takeaways that should make your recruiting and screening efforts more cost efficient as well as more successful. We also just found out that Joe, Joe sings in a rock and roll band in Florida, so uh, he's a multi-sided individual. We're really pleased to have you, Joe. <laughs> it's great to have you. Hey. So, okay, so Joe, just getting right into this this really really important topic. Uh, what process should we rely on in determining what factors to measure in an agent selection process? Well, thanks a lot, Bruce, and and that's really the first important question that we have to answer is, you know, what should we be measuring when we're looking to bring on high-quality agents that are going to stay on the job for a long period of time and be high performers? And in order to define that, we really need to take a systematic approach. So first thing we've got to do is clearly define what your agents need to do when they're on the job. And we've got to be pretty specific. We can't just rely on a description that says, well, you know, they take calls from customers and they provide information, answer questions, and and solve problems. We've got to know more than that if we're going to design an effective selection process to hire them. So we have to know exactly what they're doing when they're interacting with customers on calls. You know, are they reading from a script and following that script? And if so, 
you know, the important thing is for them to have the ability to adhere to that script and deliver it well, or as in most cases today, is the job more complex where when they're talking with customers, they have to deal with multiple information sources and, you know, do they have to multitask and do complex screen navigation so they can look up information across a variety of places while they're having a natural conversation with the caller. Um, in some cases, they have to look for opportunities to sell or upsell things, or they may have to negotiate with clients in order to, you know, get payment on accounts that are past due. So it's not just that they handle calls, but it's the way in which they handle those calls and the things that they do as they're handling them that can help us really identify what are the most important factors that we should measure as part of the selection process. You, you know, Joe, I think you've hit on some really important items there. So uh, the fact that most centers, and not all, but most have job descriptions, uh, isn't necessarily enough. There's a couple of things that we've seen over the years. One is that those job descriptions tend to get long in the tooth. Nobody looks at them, and they tend to fall out of date. Second is the actual content of the descriptions that exist oftentimes don't take into account the things that you were just talking about. Uh, and they don't take into account the specific situations of the, uh, the, the center itself. So you're talking about having to use multiple information sources, uh, complex screen navigation, so that, for example, after there's a merger of uh, two companies and the uh, people in the center have to take care of you know, the products from two different companies, and they have to actually navigate on a di different sets of uh, desktop uh, software, this can actually change the nature of the job. And that's oftentimes one of the reasons why, in fact, there's a lot of upheaval and, and dissatisfaction after a, um, you know, a merger. It's not just because of the merger itself or cultural differences. It can also be because the nature of the job that they actually have to do has changed. And uh, instead of dealing with, you know, say, three uh, applications, they may have to be dealing with ten. Uh, so you need to know your center, the kinds of calls that are coming in, the kinds of, um, you know, technology and processes that you have, uh, as well as just the, uh, the kind of old-fashioned job description you were talking about. Yeah, that's exactly correct. That, that's not sufficient if you're going to design a really effective process to hire you know, another thing that, that you really need to do that a lot of centers don't is you've got to distinguish the specific differences between superstars and average performers or low performers. And to just say, well, you know, our high performers, they have a positive attitude. That's not going to cut it. That's not enough. We have to know and examine what is it those superstars say or do on the job that we can see or hear that clearly distinguishes them as a super performer. And a good way to do this is, you know, look at critical incidents, as, as, as you were saying, look at the call types. Look at the typical types of calls that come in, and what we like to do with our clients is examine, okay, let's, let's look at a, a dozen or so of these calls, and let's really define very behaviorally the difference between a way a superstar would handle that situation and how an average performer would handle that. And what we come out with there is kind of a dichotomy of what we're looking for and what we're not looking for. 
And if we can design our selection system around focusing on those things that we're looking for, we're going to hire better performers, which is what the entire process is about. Mm. No, that's the, those are good points. So you you need to know yourself. You need to know your center. You need to know your call types. And uh, in terms of star performers, low performers, uh, you're saying, what are the analytical indices of stardom? It's not just, uh, you know, saying, okay, this person is doing better. Why are they doing better? What does it go back to? And how can we then push that back into the selection system? So uh, great right. points. Yeah, well, to give you an more... example, I mean, sometimes when we peel the onion back, we find that, well, they say our high performers position and sell more product. Well, how do they go about doing that? And what we learn is they're very good at call control. They can control the pace and direction of the call. They're very good at multitasking and getting to the right information quickly and conveying that quickly to the customer, building confidence in the customer that they have the ability to handle their situation and that extra time allows them to then get to the cross-sell opportunities that are out there. And if you can't do those things effectively, then your metrics are going to drop, your sales revenue is going to drop. So what that tells us is we've got to focus on hiring people that have that ability to do those things that lead to more sales. And that's very, that's very concrete, very behavioral, behavioral, and that's something we can definitely measure. Um, and to get there, you know, it, it doesn't have to be this elaborate six-month job analysis process. I mean, we do a lot of job analysis in my field. But, you know, you can define these things by, by talking to first-level supervisors and trainers and asking them about, you know, what are the performance deficiencies you're seeing in people that go through training or things you're seeing in the first 60 to 90 days that, that lead to their inability to succeed or their ability to be outstanding. And usually those folks can give you a pretty clear picture if you keep probing and asking the right questions. Mm, okay. So so how do we measure these things? In other words, these are all great points, and if we're actually trying to incorporate these points or try in the future to incorporate these points into our selection process, um, you know, how do we measure them? How do we go about doing this? Well, there's a lot of different ways to go about measuring, and I'm going to touch on, on several of them. Um, and one of the other important things to consider is don't try to measure everything. Uh, sometimes if you try to measure every single facet related to performance, it becomes unwieldy. You end up with a two-hour selection battery, which isn't realistic because no applicant today is going to tolerate that much assessment. So you've got to focus on measuring the most important things and you've got to measure things that are selection factors, not training factors. Don't, don't try to measure people on their knowledge of your specific product line, because you're going to train them on that. But you can measure their ability to learn about products and apply that to situations with customers. Um, and when it comes to measurement techniques, you know, the goal of any good measurement process is to actually predict job behavior. That's what we're trying to do with all of this. And in, in most cases, what we're finding in the contact center position today, you know, the common factors that get measured or, or need to be measured are, again, talked about a little bit, but this ability to multitask, to be able to talk and type and talk and read at the same time, to navigate the screens, to look up information, to establish that positive customer relationship, to look for opportunities to position and sell. 
And there's a lot of different methods that have been used. You know, traditionally there's been unstructured interviews, which are still very prevalent today where you're just asking people questions and listening to their answers and trying to infer how they're going to perform. Uh, there's self-report surveys, usually personality-based, but you're asking people to rate how closely their behavior or performance mirrors a particular survey item. There's general mental ability tests, which are essentially trying to measure someone's cognitive ability or, or how quickly they can pick up on new information. And there's biographical data. Um, and all of these have merit. They all can help answer the question of, is this person going to perform well on the job? But they're all one step removed from actual job performance because we're looking at their results and we're trying to then infer from those results how they're going to behave on the job. And another way to do this, which is emerging uh, and is among the most, if not the most accurate way, is the use of simulations. Because in simulations, we're putting applicants in conditions and situations that are very much like what they're going to experience on the job. And we're getting an opportunity to see how they actually behave in those situations. So we don't have to make inferences as to how we think they're going to perform. We're actually looking at their performance, which gives us a much more accurate measure. Right. Okay. And that, I mean, that is so important. Because uh, what you're saying is that it's one thing to maybe see some correlations between uh, general mental abilities, biographical data, et cetera, and uh, job success, uh, looking back on things. But it's another thing to actually uh, put the person in the position of simulating the job itself and then seeing how they perform. And uh, then, you know, looking at how that performance correlates to, be, to uh, success going forward. Um, can you give us a little bit more detail on how that can be done? Sure. Um, for example, we're, we've talked quite a bit about this ability to multitask and screen navigate while you're talking with customers. And that's hard to measure. Unfortunately, you can't really measure that with an interview question, and you can't really measure it with a self-report survey item. But what you can do is you can put people in a simulation that requires them to listen to customer calls, and as they're listening to those calls, they're having to look up information across, you know, six, seven different systems, provide that information back to the customer, enter data as the customer is talking, um, answer questions related to the customer's requests or issues, and navigating to the right screen at the right point in the exercise. And we've done this through the simulation technology where, you know, in about a 30-minute experience, we can absolutely identify whether or not someone has the ability to do this based on their performance in this computerized simulation. So an applicant essentially is sitting in front of a computer that's like a workstation. They're hearing these simulated calls, and they're doing all of these activities, and everything that they're doing is being measured, monitored, assessed, and scored. So when they're done, we've got an absolute indication of whether or not they have the right ability set in order to do this job effectively. Okay, that's, that's powerful stuff because if you're able to put somebody in front of a computer uh, for 30 minutes and uh, put them through a well-structured, obviously uh, expertly built simulation program 
so that they can uh, then react to it and uh, give their inputs, then, then that's, that's major stuff. And it um, should correlate to much higher success rates on the part of the people who are actually hired. Isn't that correct? Yeah, the, the validity coefficients that we have for our simulations are among the highest of any predictor in the industry. They typically range from 0 0.40 up to 0.56. For those that aren't familiar with those coefficients, that's very strong, meaning they're very accurate predictors of how they're going to perform on the job. And there's been so many advances in the technology that make this a lot easier to do than it used to be. You know, now the simulations are shorter, as I mentioned, around 30 minutes. They can be remotely delivered via the Internet. Um, they can be taken remotely. Um, depending on the type of simulation, some can be delivered on mobile devices. Some don't, don't lend themselves to mobile devices because we're measuring that computer ability. Uh, so there's a lot of technology enhancements that have made this much more practical and cost-effective to use than it used to be. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's uh, very, very good information. Um, what are some of the common pitfalls that you've seen uh, that we should try to avoid, Joe? Yeah, there's been a lot over the years, and they've, they've kind of changed a bit. Um, but some of the, the common ones currently that I think we see, because we're constantly working with multiple contact centers on a day-to-day on a -day basis, one is unrealistic, unrealistic expectations for the assessment time. So I've mentioned that we've gotten good at making things shorter, but if you're looking to measure, you know, 20 facets uh, that predict success with a 15-minute assessment, you're not going to be real successful. So you have to have some realistic expectations about the amount of time that you're going to require applicants to spend going through a process. So, you know, obviously it can't be, you know, two, two and a half hours because no one will last, but um, trying to get everything done in 15 minutes isn't going to be effective either. We're finding that if we can operate in a 30-minute to a one-hour minute uh, or a one-hour time limit, that enables us to get really solid information and make accurate predictions and at the same time still have a good applicant experience without a tremendous amount of dropout. So that's one uh, pitfall to, to, to kind of avoid. So if we think about where to put the simulation in the hiring process, if you could just flesh that out a little bit more for us, and then we'll go to some questions that Brian's got for us. But um, this is something that would come after a screening of resumes, uh, but before an in-person uh, interview. Where would you put the uh, simulation uh, exercise into the overall process, Joe? Yeah, that's a great question, and it relates to one of the pitfalls, which is missequencing the, the order. Um, the simulation should go early in the process. So once you've done some basic resume screens or looked at applications and verified that they are employable, you should administer the simulation then. Uh, it has advantages because it, it doesn't require any evaluation from a recruiter or a manager, so it's automated. Uh, it's usually the most valid and objective part of the selection process. So putting it before, let's say, a person-to-person -person interview has advantages because you're doing less interviews, you're only interviewing the most qualified applicants, and you're avoiding the error of people making initial impressions about an applicant that aren't accurate. 
And if those impressions aren't supported by whatever assessment you're using, they begin to question the assessment and lose confidence in the process, and it spirals downhill from there. Got you. Okay. So really, uh, the simulations could even come before a telephone interview, because one of the things that we often tell people is that uh, do a telephone interview before you do the in-person interview, because it's possible that the person does not have a good telephone presence, and therefore yeah. uh, taking the time and the resources to interview the person in, in person can oftentimes be an expensive waste of money. So. Absolutely. What a lot of our clients are doing is they're administering the simulation early in the process and then following that with a short automated interview, which is mm -hmm. simply a couple questions that the applicant responds to in their own voice. And that way they can not only see their score in the simulation, but they can hear how well they communicate and they can listen to the way they responded to job-related questions. So you can do both of those things before a phone screen interview or a face-to-face -face interview and save a lot of time uh, in the hiring process and be very accurate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's all great information. Uh, Brian, I think that you've got some questions that have come in. Over to you. I do. I do. And uh, speaking of saving time, I think this is a really good one. Uh, the question is, I am a manager at a call center, and this screening simulation process sounds great. But I'm wondering if there is a version I could put my potential fiancé through. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I, I made that up. You <laughs> did. But, uh, uh, Joe, would you like to comment on that? <laughs> I would suggest uh, a live-in period. How's that for an answer? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Otherwise, it's a million, billion dollar idea. All right. Okay, so um, the real question is, comes from Chris. Uh, I was just hired as a manager in a unionized government call center. What are the things that I need to watch out for in the screening process? That's a great question. Yeah, if you're operating in a unionized environment, you need to be, pay very close attention to make sure that the process you're using is valid and legally defensible. So you should ensure that there is validity evidence that exists that shows whatever tool it is you're using um, is an accurate, valid predictor. It doesn't discriminate against any subgroup. Um, and that validity data should be, you know, within two years uh, in terms of when it was done. Uh, and also, you know, in times that we've worked in a union environment, we try to get members of the union to, if we're developing a new simulation, we like to get their input and involvement if possible so that they have some ownership in the process and some buy-in, which makes it less likely that we're going to have issues down the road. But if you're in a union environment, you're, you're more susceptible to an audit, so you need to make sure that your validity and legal defensibility is totally up to snuff. Right. Uh, I would agree with that. And uh, it is a great idea to get the members of the union involved because that way you can get their um, buy-in and it will be something that will be to your advantage, obviously. But it's not sufficient to have the union buy-in in order to be in compliance with the law and with regulations. So it's a good idea to discuss this with your employment attorney and uh, make sure that whatever you're putting in there will pass uh, you know, inspection in terms of any uh, audits that are done, as, as Joe was just saying. So uh, great question, 
Chris, and uh, I think a very important one to, to handle up front so that you're not regretting that you didn't handle it later on. <laughs> so uh, good question. Okay, Brian? Okay, another one comes in from Marge, um, and Marge is asking, we are in a semi-rural area and have a limited pool to hire from. How far out should I go in my recruiting efforts? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I think, you know, there's some rules of thumb that the closer um, the applicant is to the workplace, the the better for everyone. I think, uh, Bruce, you might have some more information on that. Yeah, actually, um, we uh, did a study a few years ago uh, that resulted in a report called the Agent Voices Report, and this was over 5,000 uh, agents in North America. And one of the things that came out of it with regard to your question, Marge, was that um, the farther out people are from their work, the less satisfied they are statistically in terms of their satisfaction with their job. And particularly those people who have to commute for more than an hour uh, had a remarkably less uh, or lower job satisfaction rating. Now, obviously, I, I don't want to color anything because people listening to this call now may have people who commute an hour and a half each way and who are fabulous employees, and you know, there's no reason to get rid of them or anything like that. It's just on average, statistically, uh, it's been shown that uh, having a very long commute is a problem in terms of uh, your overall job satisfaction. So, you know, I think in terms of uh, screening or even pre-screening, uh, this is something that you might want to keep in mind uh, that, um, you know, you don't want to go too far afield. And actually, this is where, you know, we, a discussion about at-home agents may come in as well. But uh, I'll, I'll turn it back to, uh, to you if you have anything else you'd like to say, Joe, or to, to Brian at this point. Yeah, on the, on the at-home agent situation, we're working with many clients who have really made a big transition to where the majority of their agents are, in fact, remote. And when we're building a selection system for them, we find this, the abilities and the factors required for success for, are largely the same. So the same core tools are used in both situations, but you know, when you're looking at remote agents, you need to test to make sure they have the right technology if you're not going to provide it to them to adequately handle uh, the calls in the way in which you want them to, and also that they have the temperament um, in order to work remotely with not having you know, on-site physical supervision. And the technology is getting so much better that in, in some of the clients we're working with, it's almost impossible the difference to tell, the difference uh, between remote and brick and mortar agents because the supervisors are, are, are seeing their calls remotely, providing feedback instantly. There's team chat that's constantly going on. So it's really becoming, uh, the differences I think are becoming less. Um, and, and I think that's good news for, for everyone. Yeah, no, I think uh, that is important. And uh, the, you know, society seems to be working toward more at-home work in general. So. It's not that uh, people in the call center industry are odd compared to others because uh, people who are salespeople for pharmaceutical companies more and more are working out of home office um, and then going as needed to uh, their 
you know, her headquarters for that. But I think it is absolutely the case that uh, the people who are successful in the office are usually successful at home as well. There's a little component of uh, just sort of personal responsibility and discipline that can come into play here. Um, and obviously by having the right uh, management techniques, which, Joe, I think you were starting to allude to in terms of supervision, in terms of engagement, in terms of all of those sorts of things, make sure that the at-home agent is not feeling left out or not feeling too empowered to abuse the system. Uh, both of those things are important. Uh, would, you, uh, would you agree with that, Joe? Absolutely. Yeah, if they can feel like they're getting the same support as the folks working in-house, uh, it tends to be a very good experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, Joe, in terms of um, sort of looking back at uh, the, system, the, 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 serve, the um, screening that's done, uh, have you seen certain things that uh, certain companies do that are particularly successful uh, in certain circumstances? Are there any insights, aha moments that you've had with clients over the last year or so that you could share with our audience before we, uh, before we wrap up here? Yeah, a couple things. One is the most successful companies are willing to live with the fact that by putting in a process like this, it's going to be harder to hire people. And I don't mean harder in terms of cycle time, but some people are going to drop out when they're asked to take an assessment, and some people are going to not pass the assessment. And that's what these things are designed for. So the good companies that have a lot of success with this, they're not surprised and they don't panic about that. They realize these processes are in place to find people that are highly motivated. So if they drop out, you know, once they hear they have to do something to get the job, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And if they don't meet the standards that we've set for the screening tools, that's not a bad thing either, and they are, in fact, going to be screened out. And it might mean that we have to source a few more applicants in order to fill seats, but we're going to get higher quality applicants. And if they don't embrace that fundamental thought paradigm, then it's hard to be successful. Mm. Quality does take time, and quality does uh, take effort. There's just no doubt about that. Yeah, and it does winnow things down. Okay, well, these are great insights. Uh, are there any last things that you'd like to share with us before we turn things back to uh, Brian to wrap up the show? No, I've really enjoyed it, and I hope that uh, some of the things we've talked about can, can help people. Okay. Thank you very much. I absolutely think that they will. I think uh, people who've listened to this are going away with a lot of good takeaways. So we appreciate that very much, Joe. Okay, over to you, uh, Brian. Well, thanks again to Joe LaTorre from Innovation at Employment Technologies and uh, Benchmark Portal CEO Bruce Belfiore for a very insightful discussion on the show today. And I want to remind you, of course, to head over to BenchmarkPortal.com if you're not there already and uh, take a look at over seven seasons of topics and shows that we have that hopefully will be useful to you and your team and available to listen to anytime that's good for you. So with that being said, uh, from all of us here at Benchmark Portal, keep those headsets steady and your fingers ready. This is Brian Carrington signing out. Have a great day.
Screen on, my friends.